there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Last week I talked about the first half of the Lord's Prayer, which is what we might call the heavenly part. The older I get, the more convinced I am that this prayer comprises everything that I want to pray. Now there was there were many years when I did not understand that. I learned the prayer when I was probably two since my father had all, all of us children repeat it every morning in, morning in family prayers, we rattled it off without consciousness or interest in what it meant. But our parents were wise in their belief that it's a good idea to stuff your children's heads full of stuff that's worth keeping. And since their little heads are amazing, almost miraculous in their power to memorize, uh, we memorized thousands of Bible verses and hymns and the Lord's Prayer without any effort whatsoever. The first petitions, the first, uh, the introduction is, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we spoke about the fact that the hallowing of the name of the Lord is carried out in the next two petitions. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we have a responsibility to align our wills and our desires and our prayers with the kingdom of God. And we pray, thy will be done. And when we pray, thy will be done, then we are making a declaration that we are prepared to conform ourselves to the will of God. It's very easy, I guess, especially in memorized or written forms of prayer to be very vague and not pay attention to the fact that this comes right down not just to my church and my home, but to my heart, to my will, to the way in which I live every day of the week the way in which I do my work, the way in which I treat my husband, the way in which I treat other people. So I am declaring in rather a breathtakingly sweeping way that I will cooperate in the coming of the kingdom and in the coming of the will of God. When I pray this prayer, I thank the Lord for the privilege of calling him my father and the privilege of praying in company with what the ancient prayers call the glorious company of the apostles, the goodly fellowship of the prophets, and the noble army of martyrs, all those unseen members of the company in heaven with whom we join our prayers. And because we're using here the model that Jesus specifically gave to his disciples when they asked him, teach us to pray, we can be sure that we are praying well if we are sincere and honest in, in the way we pray. But now, this morning, we're going to turn our eyes to earth from that glorious, 
un, almost unimaginable kingdom of heaven where all those glorious people are, the prophets and the martyrs and the apostles. We come right down to this earth, to our own little private, individual, personal, uh, daily, ordinary concerns with the next three petitions. Give us this day our daily bread. I don't know very many people in this room. The few that I do know, I really don't know what their deep burden or need might be this morning. But I know the one who knows. And so I can say these words to you with the full consciousness that I am not aware of, of how it applies to you. But with the, the odd awareness that the Holy Spirit does know exactly where you are, what your need is, and how this particular petition, give us this day our daily bread, may be meaningful in your life. Some of you may be confused, some of you overburdened, some of you sad, some of you in desperate need of some particular thing, perhaps material things, money or a job or a house or something like that. I think all of these things are included in the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. I would, don't, I would doubt that there would be very many people in this room, if any, who really know what it is to be hungry in the sense that a starving person knows. I know nothing about it. So if we limit this petition to literal bread, we are narrowing it down far more than I think Jesus intends us to do. But to ask God for our daily bread calls my attention to the humbling reality that I am human, that I am finite, that I need physical things. I need help. I need to be fed. I need to receive from God the strength, the joy, the guidance, uh, the physical food, the job, the house. My literal breath comes from God, doesn't it? When I get up in the morning, I realize I could not put my feet out of the bed if it weren't for God. I could not draw my next breath. I would have no house to live in and no work to do. So I have a very long list of things for which to thank God. But when I pray, give us this day our daily bread, I sort of imagine that God is going to hand me a platter on which everything that he knows this day holds lies. And when Lars and I pray together after breakfast, he will often say, he will often pray for the things that we think we're supposed to do today, and we both have lists of things that need to be done, and for the things that you know, Lord, that will be unexpected for us. Whatever I need today, in the mercy of God, I am asking him to give me. And it is in and through these things that he calls me to a supernatural life in the work that I do, in the letter that I get, in the phone call that brings me upsetting news, in my need of whatever kind, he is calling me to himself. Do you know that old hymn, Jesus Calls Us, or the tumult of our life's wild, restless sea? Some of you may feel that your life is particularly wild and restless right now and that you're at sea. Day by day, his sweet voice soundeth, saying, Christian, follow me. He calls me in every 
conscious need. He calls me to himself. He calls me to his knee. So it's not bread alone by which I live, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And God has a word for each of us, for our particular need, if we will but listen. And if there's anyone here who doesn't feel that he or she knows how to pray, just take this simple model that Jesus gave to the disciples. And as you ponder quietly over each phrase, I believe that the Holy Spirit will show you how he wants you to apply that in your own life today. Bread itself, as we Episcopalians would probably realize better than some other Protestant churches, has a sacramental significance. It is a visible sign of an invisible reality. That's what a sacrament is, isn't it? And it's not only the body and blood of the Lord Jesus that we are thinking about. That, of course, is what we do think about in the communion service in the Eucharist. But my bread, what I receive from God daily, is his word. It is his speaking to me through the Bible, through other people, through a thousand mercies and providences. He is constantly drawing me to himself and raising my sights above my own particular little, little private world, my small world. He is giving himself to us. He is a self-giving, a self-imparting God who wants to give us our daily bread. He wants to give us exactly what we need. But the thing is, God knows better than we do what we need. How often you and I hammer away at God's door for something that we're pretty sure we need, and we need it desperately, and we've got to have it now. And it doesn't come. It doesn't seem to come at all. I talked with a woman one time who was asking me for a specific prayer for a place to live, and the living situation that she described gave me the greatest kind of sympathy for that poor lady. She and her husband, and I've forgotten how many children, were living in somebody's basement. And they really needed to get out of there. And they were missionaries, and the people upstairs were missionaries, and they had to work together, and they had to live together. And the quarters were very cramped. And so she came to me and she said, Elizabeth, would you pray that the Lord will give us a better place to live? And I said, yes, I certainly will. But I said, you know, Mary, I'll call her Mary, you don't need that today. And she looked at me with shock. And of course, I went on quickly to explain that what I mean is that the Bible has told us that God will supply all our needs. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And undoubtedly, the fact that God hasn't given you another place to live by today is because God has something else that he wants to give you, perhaps his grace. You remember that Paul prayed three times that the Lord would take away that thorn in his flesh? And the answer was no. But God wanted to give him sufficient grace to deal with that thing. And you know, that young woman's face just lit up. And she said, I can't wait to get to the phone and call my husband and tell him, we don't need another house. <laughs> I said, well, you better explain pretty fast to your husband or he'll think that whoever this woman is you've been listening to is really out of her tree. <laughs> but it does come in the time, in God's time, and I think all of us, when we look back, we can realize how God delayed about certain things that we prayed and how God gave us a flat no about other things that we prayed, and we are so grateful that he did. Some of his greatest mercies are his refusals. 
think about somebody that you wished you could marry 30 years ago or something, and you just can't help thanking God that that kid in the eighth grade, <laughs> God didn't say yes about. The vicissitudes of life, the griefs, the trials, the sacrifices, the inconveniences, that humiliating fall, that mistake you made, which seems to be a disastrous mistake for which there is no remedy. Bring it to God. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, give me what I need to deal with this situation. And I just want to read you a little thing from a 19th century writer named James Reed. He says, it is wholly impossible to live according to divine order and to make a proper application of heavenly principles as long as the necessary duties which each day brings seem only like a burden grievous to be borne. Not till we are ready to throw our very life's love into the troublesome little things can we be really faithful in that which is least and faithful also in much. Every day that dawns brings something to do which can never be done as well again. We should, therefore, try to do it ungrudgingly and cheerfully. It is the Lord's own work, which he has given us as surely as he gives us his, our daily bread. We should thank him for it with all our hearts, as much as for any other gift. It was designed to be our life, our happiness. Instead of shirking it or hurrying over it, we should put our whole heart and soul into it. I often watch my daughter's struggles in trying to teach her children to work ungrudgingly and cheerfully. And I think that's probably one of the most difficult things that parents can do. She, she can get her children to do their jobs, but to get them to do it cheerfully is not always easy. So when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we are not only asking God for what he knows we need, but we are implying in this prayer, I'll take it. I will receive as a willed, conscious act of acceptance what you know I need today, Lord. Whatever it may be, that unexpected thing, that inconvenience, that disastrous letter that tells you that the project into which you've thrown your life, as it were, is finished. I'll take it. Thy will be done. We have already prayed, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. Which means if I am going to cooperate in the work of the kingdom and offer myself, align my will with the will of God, then what God wants to give me today is a part of the coming of the kingdom and the accomplishment of the will. You see how this whole prayer just leads from one thing very logically and almost uh, necessarily into the next. So now we come to the next phrase, forgive us our trespasses. And someone has said that a trespass is our voluntary share in the sin of the world. We do sin deliberately, don't we? In fact, I remember hearing my brother Tom one time say, I not only sin, but I arrange to sin. <laughs> and I think if we're very honest with ourselves, we have to believe that that's true. If somebody offends us, we may spend weeks thinking up 
what we can do to get back at that person. We are arranging to take vengeance into our own hands, and the Bible says vengeance belongs to God. Well, that's just one little example. I don't know your heart, but God does, and he certainly knows mine. And I know that I am human and sinful, and when I pray, give us this day our daily bread, I am acknowledging my humanity and my physical needs. I am also acknowledging when I come to this petition that I am a sinner. I am a sinner, born in sin, born a rebel, and we need a Savior. Christians are people who know they can't make it on their own. We need a Savior. That is why we're Christians. Our shortcomings, not just the voluntary sins, not just the things that we arrange to do, but the things that we feel we can't even help at times. Our excesses, our debts, debts of love, trespasses, our meanness, our fear, our envy, our selfishness. And where could any of us find an escape from those words that we repeat? We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. And I like the old form of prayer that goes on to say, but thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us miserable offenders. And many of you in this room knew Hattie Payson, one of the most wonderful people that any of us ever knew, I'm sure. And I remember Hattie telling me that when that she had a friend who said to her, well, I know I'm a sinner, and I know I've left undone things that I ought to have done, and I've done things I ought not to have done, but I'm not miserable. <laughs> well, Hattie was the first to admit that she was a miserable wretch before she found Jesus Christ. And she used to, t when, whenever Amazing Grace was sung, Hattie would cry. She just could not keep back the tears because, especially when she came to those words, that saved a wretch like me. And Hattie was very candid about what a wretched and miserable life she had lived before that. And she sat in a Bible class for a number of years that I taught, and she said to me one day, you know, Elizabeth, you're always talking about suffering. She said, do you know anything about suffering? She said, you've been a Christian all your life. If you knew what it was like not to be a Christian, she said, I don't think Christians know anything about suffering. She said, it has been so wonderful. Well, we still have to come back to the fact that we are all sinners. And when we pray, forgive us our trespasses, we are not just asking that God erase the blackboard, but we are facing in this prayer the stern and serious and painful demand that God makes that we are willing to reorder our lives. What is the use of saying to your husband, well, honey, I'm really sorry that I have this nasty little habit that irritates you so much, if you're not going to do anything about it. And we, we so glibly and so easily say, well, I'm sorry, you know, well, sorry, and we go on. But when we get down on our knees and say, forgive us our trespasses, we better be prepared to face the demand for a reordered life. The word repent means to turn around, a 180-degree turn and go in the opposite direction. This is what I have been doing. I'm going to turn around and go this way, Lord. The implications of what we are saying here are very personal.
And there's a high cost. There is a price to be paid. Now, we don't just pray, forgive us our trespasses. We pray, forgive us our trespasses. How? As we forgive those who trespass against us. Have you thought about the fact that when you say this, you are declaring to God that you will receive from him exactly the measure of forgiveness that you are prepared to mete out to that person who has ruined your life. Now, nobody has ever ruined my life. I have not had that kind of a background. Some of you may have experienced having your business ruined. Somebody embezzled all the funds and went off with them. I talked with a man on a plane not too long ago who told me the most incredible story of how he had started a business and had brought his three closest friends into the business and one day he went to work and found the place padlocked and these men had destroyed his files, they had falsified new files, they had taken the entire business away from him and there has never been any uh, legal recourse. As we forgive those who trespass against us, my brother Phil was a missionary in Northwest Territory for about 30 years. And he lived for a long time in a very er remote area where there was nothing but dog sleds for transportation. And there were no white men anywhere within 100 miles, I guess. And the Indians had no use for my brother Phil because he was a white man and they had never had anything but suffering and injustice at the hands of white men. And so they wouldn't come near him. And of course, they had no idea why he was there. It was not to exploit them. And so what, did, what could he do but pray? They wouldn't sell him wood. They wouldn't help him build his log cabin. They wouldn't sell him fish. They wouldn't tell him how to manage a dog team, nothing. And he wanted to learn their language and reduce it to writing and eventually hoped to give them the Bible in their language. And so what could he do but pray? And he prayed, and God answered his prayer. For the confidence of these Indians, he began to... Uh, make friends with them, and not very long after he had gained their confidence, the, Lord, the government sent a white teacher into that area to start a school. Well, the Indians, of course, treated him exactly as they had treated my brother Phil, and the white teacher, whose name was John, was furious at Phil, jealous. And so he had a very powerful weapon in his hands, he decided that he would get the confidence of these Indians very easily because the government sent all the welfare checks to the teacher to be distributed to the Indians, and so he told the Indians that anybody that had anything to do with Phil Howard would not receive his welfare check. Well, this was magic. It worked overnight. They moved over to John's side. They refused coming to Phil's. And Phil was on his knees one day praying. You can imagine the feelings that he had against this man. And he said, I knew that my prayers were bouncing back from the ceiling. And I said, Lord, what's wrong? And he said he opened his Bible. And there, staring him in the face, was the verse, Love your enemies, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you. And Phil said, well, Lord, I can't love John. You're going to have to do that through me. I can pray for him, and I will pray for him right now, and he did. And if there's something good that I can do for him, Lord, show me. Very soon thereafter, Phil saw 
John desperately trying to get his boat out of the river because the ice was coming in. And the ice comes in very fast up there where the temperature gets to 70 below zero. And John was helpless. There were no Indians around. They were all on a hunting trip. So Phil raced down to the river and said, hold it. I'll be right down with my son. We've got a winch. We'll help you get your boat out. That's what they did. John's attitude changed overnight to Phil. Now, of course, that doesn't always happen. And you might forgive your worst enemy, and nothing ever changes in the relationship. But in this particular case, in the mercy of God, they became friends. But very quickly after that, the government moved him away, and Phil didn't ever expect to see him again. And to his amazement, bumped into him on the streets of Edmonton one day. And John said, Phil, I want to tell you that what you did for me that day changed my life. And if I ever have a chance to go back there, I want you to go with me so that I can tell the Indians I was wrong and you were right. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those. A young woman called me one time on the phone and she told me a long, sad story of how she had lost her closest friend, but she said, you know, what she you know what she had the brass to do? She called me yesterday to ask me to be godmother to one of her children. She said, Elizabeth, I could never do that after what she did to me. Do you think I should be her godmother? And I said, well, I can't tell you the answer to that question, but I can tell you what the Bible says about your bitterness. Jesus, when he had given this prayer, he said, If you do not forgive your brother from your heart, neither will my Father forgive you. She said, Is that what the Bible says? Well, I said, You know, you're a good Catholic, she happened to be. And I said, You know the Our Father. You know what it says. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Have you forgiven her in the way in which you, God, you want God to forgive you? There was a long pause, and she said, I didn't think I was going to have to do that. Well, think about it. Think about it deeply. It really is impossible for God to forgive that which I insist upon retaining. How is he going to forgive my trespass against that woman in my anger, my bitterness, my resentment toward her, unless I am prepared to give that up. If I ask him to forgive me as I forgive her, then I must be willing to forgive her because the Bible says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I think of Corrie Ten Boom, that wonderful Dutch woman who was put into concentration camp along with her father and her sister because of sheltering Jews during World War II. This was illegal in Holland, of course, and when the Nazis discovered what they were doing, they put them in concentration camp. And her father died within 10 days, and her sister starved to death. And years later, when Corrie was traveling around the world, as she said, tramping for the Lord and speaking, telling her testimony of how God had been with her in that horrible place, she saw in the audience one of the guards from the concentration camp who had been responsible for her sister's death. 
and to her horror, she saw him coming straight toward her at the end of the meeting with his hand outstretched and a big smile on his face. And she said, I sent up an SOS to the Lord. And I said, Lord, I cannot shake this man's hand. And in that moment of prayer for mercy and prayer for grace, she said, my hand shot out and I shook that man's hand. It was in the willed action. The only thing she could do was to put out her hand. It was God that was going to have to change her heart. God that had to give her the grace to forgive. And she forgave that man while she found out that he had become a Christian. And he was a brother. I don't know what your deepest wound is this morning, but I'm sure that there are many here who bear an unknown, perhaps an unseen wound. Think about this prayer as we forgive those. And it is impossible to forgive without receiving the grace of forgiveness for our own sins. Remember the parable that Jesus gave about the king who forgave one of his subjects a tremendous debt, something like a million pounds in English money today, I think. And that man, being forgiven a million pounds, went out and grabbed by the throat a creditor, a debtor who owed him a few shillings. Now, who acts like that? Only you and I. Think of what we've been forgiven. God knows the sin. Nobody else in the world knows how much I have been forgiven. God knows. How could I possibly refuse forgiveness to that one person who has done one, quote, unforgivable, unquote, thing? Evelyn Underhill says, hardness and resentment are the gates of hell. The next thing, lead us not into temptation. Now remember who, to whom Jesus give, is giving this prayer. He's not just giving it to the multitudes. He's giving it to those disciples, that picked band of godly men who followed him, who walked with him, who watched his life, who saw him pray, who heard him pray. He is telling them, these, shall we say, spiritual giants, that they must pray, lead us not into temptation. An admission that we are so vulnerable. We have admitted that we need physical things. We have admitted that we are sinners. We must admit that we are vulnerable. And temptation can be overwhelming. So we pray, lead us not into temptation. Jesus is teaching us to acknowledge our frailty. There's an interesting word in the Old Testament in Exodus, the 13th chapter, verses 17 and 18. It tells about how God did not lead the children of Israel by the shortest way when they had escaped from Pharaoh. He did not lead them by the shortest way because they would have been faced with the Philistines and might have been tempted to go to war. So there was a case where God did not lead them. He did not lead them by the shortest way because he wanted to deliver them from temptation. Now, God does not always deliver us from temptation. And let's be very clear, the temptation is not sin. Temptation is the devil's proposed shortcut 
It always involves sin if you accept it. But the devil is telling you, you don't have to go the long way around. You don't have to go by the way of the cross. You can get there this way. And he always holds out the prospect of happiness and goodness. The devil's not up there. He's not down there telling us to do something horrible. He's always offering us something that looks reasonable and right and upright and good and probably is going to lead to our happiness. So Jesus teaches us to pray, acknowledging our human failings. And the psalmist said, Hold up my goings in thy footsteps, that my steps fail not, slip not. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. Did you realize, did you ever put those two things together? The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But the temptation for Jesus was a proof that he was God, that he, was, he would not bow and remember how he met the temptations of Satan three times. He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. It was his own father's word that he went back to. And that's what you and I can go back to every time. He will keep us from falling. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God's answer is always there, but we need to pray always with the acknowledgement and the recognition throughout our lives, no matter how spiritually advanced we may think we are. Lead us not into temptation. We ask for his will and his kingdom to be done, we ask for deliverance from any test which might be too great for my frail spiritual life to bear. And then, lastly, the petition is, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Does that mean that we are exempt from accidents, from cancer, from bereavement, from suffering? No, it doesn't mean that. We must not equate suffering with evil. Now, this is a deep mystery that we're talking about here, and we only have a very few minutes, so I, I hope I can say what I need to say clearly and simply. There would, be, there would be no suffering in the world if it weren't for the evil that came in with sin. When Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, God had told them very clearly ahead of time, if you eat the fruit, you will die. And Satan came along and raised a doubt in their minds about God's faithfulness and his truthfulness. And he said, did God say that you will surely die? You won't die. You'll be a whole lot better off. And so they took Satan's word instead of God's word and they ate the fruit. And ever since then, death and sin have been in the world, and we suffer because there is sin in the world. And very often when we stop and think about it, some of our worst sufferings are because of our own sins. We have brought it on ourselves. We suffer 
because of the sins of others as well. But when I pray, deliver me from evil, deliver us from evil, I usually think, first of all, of my husband and my grandchildren, the people that I love the most in the world, my daughter, my son-in-law, my grandchildren. Lord, protect that 14-year-old boy in that public high school in Southern California. Can you imagine a more fruitful ground for temptation than a 14-year-old kid in a public high school? Temptation on every side. Keep him from the powers of evil, from the secret hidden peril, from the whirlpool that would suck him, from the treacherous quicksand pluck him. He will be surrounded with temptations. But I pray, keep him from evil, from doing that which is wrong. I pray, of course, for physical safety. He rides his bicycle on those terrible Southern California roads. Even if they're not freeways, they're just appalling. I've never seen anything like the traffic in Orange County where they live. I pray for physical safety. Maybe he'll have an accident. He has had one small accident with his bike. There's a difference between harm and hurt, and I really believe ladies and gentlemen, that God will never harm us. He will hurt us. A good surgeon, a good doctor, has to hurt you. He has to cause pain in order to heal something which is radically wrong. And God very often has to hurt us. He has to allow us to suffer. And it has been in my deepest valleys in my darkest times, in those hottest fires, where I've begun to understand the mystery of suffering, that God has revealed himself to me in a way that could not have happened if that thing which looked to me like evil had not been allowed to happen to me. He has never harmed me, but he has hurt me. A good parent has to hurt his child hurt him by refusing the ice cream cone that the child wants when he's already had three, <laughs> hurt him by giving him a spanking, but he's not going to harm the child. A godly, loving father or mother will never harm the child. So I'm praying when I say deliver us from evil, I pray that God will deliver me from my own evil tendencies, for one thing, I pray that he will keep clear and clean my relationship with him, and I am simply facing my own weakness and humbly casting all my hope and all my faith on him who is my rock. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, we come to a as a child to a father. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and Lord, here I am to cooperate with you in the coming of that kingdom and the doing of that will by asking you to give me today whatever you want me to have, and I'll take it. By praying for forgiveness and remembering that I must forgive that other person, I pray that he will lead me not into temptation in order that I may do his will, in order that I may contribute to the coming of his kingdom and deliver us from evil. What this world desperately needs more than anything else is holy people. 
Your neighbors are not going to read the Bible. They're not going to turn on Christian radio. They're not going to watch the TV evangelists. They are going to watch you. That guy goes to church every day, every week. What kind of a difference do they see in our lives? I believe that if we pray this prayer thoughtfully and honestly, it will make a very big difference in our lives. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.